I like to think of myself as disposable as possible. And if I, if I don't do think that way, then I'm not actually putting structures in place that are going to last. And I think that often the way that institutions like to give you this feeling of like, you will be the king, you will be the queen. And, but as soon as, you know, then there's no game once that person is gone. And I want to be very disposable so that there is long lasting um, impact. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Fourth Space Podcast, a special edition and the first in a series of conversations that are developed in partnership with the Black Perspectives Office. Uh, today's conversation is with founding coordinator Anik Mojir Favien, uh, in conversation with uh, multimedia freelance journalist Josie Fomet. And they discuss the legacy that brought forth the BPO and its commitment to support the community and collaborative initiatives across campus that are working to address anti-Black systemic racism at Concordia and beyond. We'd like to begin by acknowledging that Fourth Space and Concordia University are located on unceded Indigenous lands. The Cayuncahaga Nation is recognized as custodians of the lands and waters on which we gather. And Chichage, Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. We respect the continued connections with the past, the present, and the future in our ongoing relationships with Indigenous and other peoples within the Montreal community. This conversation was recorded originally in December 2020 as part of a live event hosted by Fourth Space. Uh, my name is Josie Fomet, and I'm a Concordia University alum. Uh, my background is in communications and journalism. And I'm currently the host of this new podcast called Filling the Void with Josie, a podcast for recent grads navigating life post-university. But enough about me. Let's dive into Madame Anique. Hi, Anique. Welcome. Hi. It is such a pleasure to be here with you all. So exciting. And I'm, I'm just so happy to, to be in conversation with you, Josie. Um, your work is really inspiring and just another great Concordia alumni. I'm so happy. Yes, thank you so much. Speaking of being a Concordia alumni, you're a three-time graduate of Concordia. So let the people know, what did you study? What, what keeps you coming back? <laughs> you know, it's funny. Uh, clearly, I, I keep on coming back and it's, it's not going to be the last one. Um, so I actually started, you know, um, I never finished CGIP. And I, and I like to bring that to the forefront because I know that a lot of students, um, like we stigmatize the whole idea of like being a dropout and all of that and what, what ends up happening down the line. And there was a lot of reasons why I dropped out of CGIP. Um, there was... You know, it was it was actually a really difficult experience for me as a black student. Um, and for some reason, I actually don't remember what happened, but I, I decided to come to the Concordia and speak to an advisor um, here. And I told her what was happening at school and, uh, and how I was having a hard time. And she actually suggested that I come back as a mature student when I was 21 and, you know, take some time. Um, heal from all those experiences that I had and come back as an independent student and that I can, you know, bring up my GPA that way and, and get into the program I was interested in. So I actually started as an independent student, then went into the bachelor's in exercise science, um, which was such a great experience. And then um, after working in the field for a little while, um, felt the need to come back to university uh, with more of a, an activist mindset. I was doing a lot of community work um, in exercise science and there was just, I felt like there was more for me to unpack and came and did a graduate diploma in commu communications um, and then ended up doing my master's in media studies. So yeah, I've been here a while and I'll probably be here for the PhD as well. <laughs> you know, it's it's so, it's so interesting to see how 
the people that touch us, right? There are these people that come and touch our lives and completely transform it. Um, and sometimes, you know, it's not so great. And sometimes it's actually super positive and life affirming and life transforming. And it seems as if that's what happened for you with this Concordia um, advisor. What would you say, like, what you, how has what you studied led you to kind of like what you're doing today? I, I, I would assume it's more so the last the last degree, but they probably all played a little part. To be super honest, my bachelor's, I did it for my, my mom. <laughs> my bachelor's, I did it for my mom. She wanted <laughs> Hello. <me> to <laughs> a bachelor's in science. You know, I come from, you know, I come from a Haitian family and there is a certain yes. amount of like... Completely understand. You know, you got to have the professional view. And, and, and I'm really grateful for that because it did open up a lot of doors for me. And, you know, if things don't work out in this avenue, who knows? I'll, I'll be going back to, to exercise <laughs> science for sure. Um, but then, yeah, communication studies, a grad diploma, was really interesting because it um, it's a one-year program, right? And and it really um, boosted my skill set um, in terms of, you know, being able to create websites, um, do video. I did documentaries. I did a, a lot of just, and I needed kind of hard skills and that was really, really helpful um, in that diploma. But then there's also a component of that, which was to explore the, the theory of communication and understand the history of how, uh, we communicate with one another, how like race relations and all these really interesting thoughts that I never had the opportunity to unpack because I'd had come from a bachelor's of science. And that really, I was like, okay, well, wait a second. <laughs> like this is like all these thoughts and feelings that I was having um, in my youth. And um, it just gave vocabulary to a lot of uh, my internal turmoil, essentially. Yes. Um, and I was really able to, to expand on that, obviously, in my master's and really understand what it would be like to... to uh, my master's was really around um, creating critical di dialogue for uh, youth in terms of race. And yeah. and I needed that as a youth, for sure. And I was really able to unpack that in, in that master's. So um, it is really the foundation of what I've been able to do further in my career and, and really trying to bridge uni university knowledge with community knowledge and um, think through how we're, uh, in, in a lot of ways we're doing the same things, but we have different vocabulary for that. And how do we find uh, commonalities and, and you know push forward to the same direction? And so now you're the founder um, of the Black Perspectives Office here at Concordia University. I mean, what what is this? What is the BPO? Oh my goodness! I guess I have to to rewind to talk about how um, the step before the Black Perspectives Office, which was the Black Perspectives Initiative, um, right. and that is crazy because really at the end of the day that was just only a, a short year ago. But obviously, the you know when we think of it in terms of that timeline, it, it seems really short. But in terms of the legacy. We're talking over 60 years of work that has led to this moment. Um, but so before the Black Perspectives Initiative, I was on a, um, an equity pro project um, called Crit Critical Feminist Art, Activism and Research. And we were really trying to get a sense of what were the EDI, anti-racist, feminist uh, grassroots initiatives that were happening on campus and how do, how do we create opportunities for them to get in relationship with um, faculty and administration so that these ideas come into the actual structure of the university? And what, through that process, it was a three-year um, research project, we 
had a lot of proposals that we brought to, you know, the Faculty of Arts and Science and as well as other administrators. And we had a really great, this project was funded by the, the Faculty of Arts and Science, and we had amazing support from them from the beginning. And one of the projects that got their attention was was like a very draft version of what became the Black Perspective Initiative. And through that, there was, um, you know, funding opportunities. There was just essentially trying to, to see what were the needs of the Black community at Concordia and how can we address some of them. Um, now, I have to say that had it not been for the fact that I've been at Concordia for 10 plus years, it wouldn't have been as easy to kind of put something of the sort in, in place. That, that is, I'm building on the legacy of the many Black activists and students that have been here for like generations and generations, but also on my own legacy at Concordia, which allowed me to have um, information, contacts, networks, et cetera, to, to be yeah. able to do that. Um, and so from November of 2000, oh, we got a visitor. <laughs> Yes. Hello. <laughs> Thank you. Me, yes, you can put them on. Thank you. Me, no, no, you're in me put it the wrong way. No, you put it the right way. That's perfect. Sorry, everyone. Um, so the, the initiative from um, November 2019 till about, uh, I would say, well, I mean, let's say March 2020, the, the infamous March 2020. <laughs> and, you know, March is my birthday and I, I'm not here for any of the March slander that I keep seeing online. <laughs> We were able to create quite a bit of impact and momentum and interest and so many different parties across the university were really interested in working with us. And it was, it was exciting because it was addressing um, for the first time in my relationship with Concordia, the silos that I saw in terms of, um, particularly in terms of black community at Concordia. Like there are people doing great work in so many different departments and et cetera, but we don't know each other. We don't have a, the opportunities to, to connect, but more importantly, everyone was doing this on top of their Concordia title. So, you know, you have an advisor who on top of their hours, on top of it, they're dedicating their time to black students, the, the librarians, the, you know, all of this. And no one had in their specific title to do this work. And my title was that. And I was, you know, I was working 15 hours a, a week at the time. But even with that, I was able to do so much because my actual role was to do this work. Um, then, you know, the, the pandemic hit and of course, um, the murder of George Floyd, as well as the, you know, the uprising of the Black Lives, Black Lives Matter movement that has, you know, had been around for a long time, but really uh, a massive uprising on a global level allowed for interesting conversations to happen at the university administrative level of how do we invest in projects that are already happening at the university and push this further? Um, and so there was a, a list of demands that was sent to the, the administration and they were very responsive. Um, they brought me to the table because one of the demands was for the Black Perspective Initiative to be better funded, for it to become an actual um, you know, full-time position, et cetera. But at the time, we, you know, there wasn't the vocabulary of like, it should become an office. And that was actually in collaboration with the administration that that happened. And I'm really glad that it happened on, on that level because as an office, I we have the opportunity to really go across the entire university in a way that is not possible when you are a 
you know, a small project within the Faculty right. of Arts and Science. You need to be able to have the support of the school in every aspect. And also just be able to to build the connections, you know. So on one level, it's about funding. On another level, it's about um, the access to different departments that you have. Um, it's also about just the impact that you can uh, create, um, the advocacy work that can happen. And also at the end of the day, it's because students really want to be in connection with administration. And if we don't have um, bridges to, for that, then we're not really doing um, the long-term work, the long visioning work that I think that everyone wants to to be pushing for it. And um, so, yeah, so that was, has been a really amazing experience. And I'm also the uh, one of the co-chairs on the task force on anti-Black racism, um, which I hope to have, you know, one of my fellow co-chairs as a guest on, on this uh, webinar series eventually. But yeah, it's been really uh, an amazing time, especially as, you know, I, I think about my younger 21-year-old self who's, you know, seen this work and is just like, wow, <laughs> like, who would have thought that this was possible, first of all, and like how much this actually attends to so many of the needs that I had when I was coming into this space. You mentioned BLM and the shift that this particular year provided, whether it was just the BLM movement um, or Corona or a mix of the two at the time. Why do you think that the BPO was able to become what it is now in this particular moment? You know, one of the things that I appreciate about the, the BLM movement um, is that, so I, I'm, you know, the daughter of two Black activists who were, you know, my, my, my father was in prison for being a, a student activist when he was like 27, you know, and it's, it's interesting being close to that age and also just being like, wow, like the reality of my kind of North American privilege is that I can do this work and not fear for my safety in the same way that my father had to. And and my mom's very similarly, she had to leave Haiti because her mom was like, you're not going to survive in a country like this. You know, you're too outspoken. Um, and especially in the, the political regime that they were living in. And um, I think that one of the things that my my parents didn't have to deal with, which we were, we've been dealing with for the last few generations has been that, you know, they didn't have to like convince people that racism exists. It's like, it's a problem. We're going to deal with it. And yes. And the, the, the fight was very different and, and the struggle was um, probably more, um, I mean, the violence was very apparent and in your face. Right. And so I never want us to go back to that type of violence, but I am frustrated that over the years, the, there has been this dilution of what racism actually is and that we weren't able to actually be like, this is, violent. This is not okay. You can't just um, kill people and have, and the whole spectrum of it, right? Whether that be microaggressions or systemic racism or avert violence and all of these things, they're all part of the same problem. And I, I feel like, you know, for the last 10 years, it's constant, like trying to convince people that it's even real in order to be able to address it. And so I really appreciate that about the Black Lives Matter movement, because in the, this is the first time in like 10 years that I don't have to do so much of that prep work of just laying the land of, 
oh, there's racism before I can get to the point of actually addressing it, um, before I can get to the point of looking what an anti-discriminatory uh, and anti-racist framework would look like. Um, and it's so important because not only is it important for the, the activist work and, and all of that, but also because we need to acknowledge the experiences of our of this generation, of the generations to come. And it's it's been so insidious that it took me... 20 plus years to even realize what I was experiencing, to realize why I felt um, so disconnected to the person that I am, why schooling was difficult and all of these different aspects that affect our mental health, our physical well-being and all of this. Um, and it is really reaffirming. I see it in our youth. I see it, um, you know, I have baby cousins that are in their teens and I really see them grappling with this and being like, wow, this is what I'm experiencing. Thank you for at least acknowledging it. Now let's, let's tackle it. Right. It makes me think of uh, Toni Morrison and, you know, she is just a pride possession, possession in our community. Um, and she has this quote, which I just kind of like sum up to her saying that racism is a distraction. Because that's not the issue. Everything underlying it is what we need to like be discussing and working on. But we need to still like the fact that we need to still say that this is real to some people is what's hindering us from being able to get to the actual issues and work like what you're doing with the BPO. It's going to be a game changer for activists, specifically even student activists on campus and what they will go on to do post-university, right, in the world as a result of engaging with you and engaging with a space like this, right, as we're seeing in you and how you're using this to just kind of continue to change your life and the lives of those close to you. Um, it makes me think, what what are the similarities or, or differences, maybe, um, does the BPO have with, say, a Black Studies program? Yeah, I um, thank you for that question. I, I think about that a lot. Um, what I strive to do with the BPO and 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 I say this knowing that the BPO is living and moving, right? The the needs yeah. of the community will change and that I will always adjust to that, you know, and, and I hope that that's the long legacy of this office is that it's that we are staying uh, aware of what the community needs. But at this particular moment, um, the most flagrant need is 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 a form of emergency care, right? So um, our students, our faculty, our staff need um, spaces to connect with one another. They need mentorship. They need funding. They need resources. And all of that, um, the theoretical, like the Black Studies aspect, is important and is something that we are definitely, I feel, is, is something that needs to be pushed for on all, you know, in all universities. But the emergency care is what I think I don't see in a lot of different spaces, right? What are we doing in terms of mental health resources for our community? What are we doing in terms of um, encouraging self-determination? Um, the, the relation is, it's, it's really so uh, visceral, you know, when I when I have these experiences with students that will come to my office um, back in the day when we could be in an office, but even now, on, whether that be on online and um, we can kind of talk about their actual issues or like what they really want to talk about, because they don't have to either check their blackness at the door or have to like succumb the, the barriers of 
Um, you know, are you going to understand me? At the end of the day, I need support with my schooling. And these are these issues that I'm uh, having trouble with. I would like to find a mentor. I would like to, et cetera. And it is such an honor to be able to do that work and really get to the core of what the needs are um, and to be able to let people be whole when they come to the, to the table um, and not have to hide certain aspects of themselves, not have to be afraid that they will be uh, discriminated against for or tokenized um, for who they, you know, what they look like um, and the identities that they hold Dear to their hearts, uh, and and so that's that's really what the BPO does, as as opposed to necessarily the studies um, component, which is. So that's the emergency care. And then there's the task force on anti-black racism, which is so exciting because the task force gets to look at the long game of what do we want to see uprooted from the institution, our institution, Concordia, but also the, the Canadian, you know, university in general, right? Um, you know, what does that look like in terms of campus security? What does that look like in terms of curriculum? What does that look like in terms of faculty development? And really, like, understanding the inner workings of, like, of how a university works and how it excludes us in many, many, many different ways. Um, and that's the long game vision. And part of that is also looking at what a, a Black Studies program would look like, what Black Studies, uh, Black knowledge across all departments would look like. And that's very exciting work that I get to participate in while being, you know, a bit of our, our frontline worker in, in terms of um, BPO and, and trying to make sure that, you know, I, I do come from exercise science and you were asking me, how does that? come into to my work and that's it's really that you know I wanted to be an athletic therapist I want to be on the field I want to be the person that responds but when I see someone hurt it is really important for me to respond to that and I get to do that with the BPO I mean when I hear stuff like this it just excites me right because it's lacking it is very evidently lacking and if you speak to the majority of black students and other students of colors they will tell you similar stories right um and i can imagine you you touched a bit on what the process was like to bring the bpo to life but just in case there's anybody out there listening who would be interested in bringing this into their own spaces and their universities and this is something that we want to see go even beyond concordia can you talk on any particular challenges um, that you want to share to help someone learn from your experience of bringing this space to life? Yeah, I think that um, the reality, I think that the biggest challenge that I actually haven't really experienced myself, but I know that it is a, a major challenge is that often the, the weight of this work is put on one person um, and they're hired from the external to kind of come in and fix the type of situation. And that's just a completely irrealistic model. Um, it is what leads to burnout. It's, it's, yeah, it, it's really problematic. Um, and in my case, because of my legacy here, but also I'm, I'm, I'm a local head. I was born and raised here. I ain't going nowhere. <laughs> like I'm, I'm just a local head. And so I was, you know, destined to kind of be on this type of path. And, um, I say that the challenge is really to know the institution that you're working with, um, to build that network before the work even happens, because the work is not possible um, and it won't really have a spread if there aren't um, people supporting it in different areas of the university. And uh, that is so true. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's if I if I were to not have this job tomorrow, the BPO will still continue to exist. Right. The, and it's not because of um, 
because I, I did all this like amazing work, but it's because these conversations are now at the table and you can't take them away from the table. Right. And when you bring all these people to the party um, and are actually engaging with them in meaningful ways and, and acknowledging work that's already been done, then it's in the same way that it's, you know, um, divide and conquer. Well, when you unify, when you get people together, that's really how you thrive. Um, and I, and I think that for anyone who's, wanting to do this type of work in any institution or, you know, whether it's a university or not, um, not only do I think it's important to, to get a sense of the network and et cetera, but also to, to make that known to whoever the employer is. I can't do my work unless you present me to the people who are already doing versions of this work in your field. And, um, and, and they need to foster and nurture that, right? So um, if the BPO had came up without there also being a Black Caucus and the Task Force on Anti-Black Racism and all of the many other initiatives that are happening across campus, it would not be sustainable and it wouldn't even make sense. And so that's why it had to kind of all happen at the same time. And that's what I really hope for for people anywhere in in who are do, who's doing this type of work is that they it doesn't end up a... Um, being the weight on one person. I like to think of myself as a, oh my goodness, I don't know how to say this in English, a peon. I am as disposable as possible. And if I, if I don't do think that way, then I'm not actually putting structures in place that are going to last. Um, and I think that often the way that you, um, institutions like to put this work is that they kind of give you this feeling of like, you will be the king, you will be the queen. And, but as soon as, you know, then there's no game once that person is gone. And I want to be very disposable so that there is long lasting um, impact. Yes, I love that. Keeping the door open, you do the work hard and you prepare whoever's going to come after you to continue. You pass on that torch. And I think this year we saw a lot of, how do I say, due to everything that happened, especially at the height of um, the Black Lives Matter movement in June, I believe, right? The intersection between all of these murders and just the civil unrest and stay at home laws and lockdown and people just, you know, not necessarily knowing what to do and having to face what black people face, honestly, every day. Uh, we saw a lot of people being like trying to speak up and be like, you know, okay, well, what can I do? What does that look like? I'm here. I'm listening. I shared my black square. Um, that means that, you know, I'm serious now. We saw a lot of organizations and initiatives put out messages saying that, you know, saying whatever they had to say to say that they support and now it's kind of like trickling down, right? And the question is, what, based off of what you're saying, it's like what we need is for organizations that are not looking for diversity to be a box that they check off, but rather something that is ingrained in that community and in that culture, right? And it seems that that's what y'all have been able to do with these initiatives that you have at Concordia through the BPO, through the caucus, through the um, President's Task Force on anti Black racism, where it's like, we're not checking this off, but we actually recognize that there's a huge issue. There's a gap that needs to be filled for the benefit of our community, because if these particular members aren't being catered to and aren't being thought of and aren't being taken care of, our whole ecosystem is actually failing. Um, and so that's so beautiful to see. And I love how, you know, one of your hopes and goals for this space is for students to find kind of like a, a place of uh, repose, a place where they can kind of come and alleviate their stress, but also find what they need to 
keep going on their journey, right? And find the answers that they've been looking for uh, for so long. How can students in this particular time engage with this space? I know you mentioned that everything's virtual now. So what does that look like for, for students? It's been really interesting to to find ways to engage with students um, online. I mean, in in some ways, it's been um, it's made certain things easier, and, and obviously, in other ways, it's been quite difficult. Um, I think that for myself, it's it's nurtured the the one on one time. Um, I think that you know, especially at the time, my office was at Loyola, and and. Um, I wouldn't necessarily get as many drop-ins as I get to to do in a day now and, and have that one-on-one relationship with, with students. Um, but it's also been about being innovative and finding ways to um, to build uh, a structure now. I, I think that that's what a lot of people are doing is taking this time to be like, okay, well, let's build a structure now so that when we actually are getting to be um, in person again, we'll have all these things put in place. So for example, we're starting a black student council. Um, you know, we, I, I wanna have a, a BPO ambassador program. Um, we have our, um, you know, we, we have our, we want to do peer trainings in terms of um, active listening and all of these different ways to kind of prepare the ground. And um, and it's been really exciting because students have a lot of energy and want to engage and are coming in with their ideas. Um, it's really, I, I feel more connected in, a lot, in, in some ways because of the fact that we can, um, we have easier access to one another. Um, and I'm really excited to see what that, how that's going to translate when it, when we go um, back into, you know, real life <laughs> interaction. Um, and I guess that the other, the other piece that I feel like is important when we're talking about black students um, on the online sphere is that in a lot of ways, I think that um youth, Black youth, have often kind of went to either online or um, long distance relationship because, you know, we're, we're like a fractured community, right? Not in the sense that intentional, in the sense of like, we're many diasporas around the world. Um, I, don't, I honestly don't know that many Black people who don't have WhatsApp and are talking to somebody on some other, you know, country in the world. And so in a lot of exactly right. Yeah. Right? And so, in a, in a lot of ways, I feel like there's been an, a, a sense of community that's building from that as well, because it's something that is um, almost natural to the Black community. I think about, I, I do a lot of research around how Black communities commu- communicate with one another. And there was um, one of my first iterations of my master's, I was thinking about the tapes, the cassette tapes. So I used to get, my mom used to get these cassette tapes from, from Haiti. And they would be like the most nonsensical, just like, you know, an auntie on a porch. Yes, sweetie. Okay, sounds good. So you listen to the tape and I I remember it so clearly because you'd hear the rooster in the background, right? You hear the rooster in the background and it's my auntie (laughs) telling my mom about the dress that the new, the neighbor got. And and it was so important to, to put that message on a cassette tape and send it all the way to Montreal for her to listen to. And so there, there is this legacy (laughs) of connecting through distance that I think is particular to the black community um, or, you know, racialized communities and communities that are, are are pulled away from each other in many different ways. And, um, and I feel like that's kind of been a benefit to us in this particular time of how we stay connected and find ways to um, 
to build together even through distance. That's amazing. And speaking of just staying connected, right, in any by any means necessary, we've discussed how this this has gone from like an initiative to now an office, but with a podcast series, right? And so now people can get to know what's happening in the BPO, but also what's happening on Concordia. Um, well, what's happening on Concordia about Black perspectives um, through this new podcast series that you're kind of um, initiating. Why do you think this podcast is so important or even necessary? I mean, it, what an interesting, it's so funny that that memory from these cassette tapes came to mind because it really is like, I'm such an audio head in, in that sense. I really feel like um, all of them, the stories that, that have impacted me the most in life have been um, through audio storytelling, some some version of that, right? And um, and that's why I kind of lean towards podcasts in in general. And so to to be able to do these webinars and then to transform them into a podcast with four space is really exciting because um, I feel like it, it's a, a, a form of communication that is pretty anchored in the black community and and you know it's also accessible i'm you know as as we've seen many times i have a three-year-old here but i also live with an elder right and if there's anything that connects the two of them it's audio the the way that we listen and um share we're oral communities right and um i really want to to highlight that um as well as highlight the black perspectives of things that are happening across uh campus you know the whether that be um you know marlian lopez who's working on um building a sexual assault research center in uh, montreal north whether that be the task force on anti-black racism whether that be um, professors that are being invited to speak at um, in linguistics, like there's so much action happening um, and we don't have a, a dedicated platform for how to connect one another. Um, and that's always been, uh, you know, I, I, I'm a communication student at heart. That's, that's always been something that's really important to me of uh, how do we connect people? How do we make people know what's happening in the space? Um, and to have it be in, in this format in particular, and, and you know, even when we go back to the regular day-to-day in person, but to keep a, a um, an audio or a webinar format, I think is really important because we should be able to take these these stories home, right? Like, if it, I always feel like um, sometimes I go to great talks and I'm like, man, I just want to re-listen to that. Or there was this one moment that really hit me and I, and I want to unpack that a little bit more and allow myself the opportunity to um, be present because I can actually re- return to the moment when need be. Um, so yeah, so and this really opportunity exciting. to share it with someone else exactly. as well, right? And then be able to discuss and break break bread and figure out, okay, well, how did you receive that? Yeah. And discuss those different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm really I'm really excited to see uh, how that's going to develop and and to learn more. I mean, honestly, it's it's a bit of a um, a selfish venture in the sense that I just want to know what people are doing. <laughs> I want to know. I'm so curious. I have questions and, and it's, it's so it. exciting to, to have a platform to do that, to ask all the questions you want. I mean, just, you must know this as a journalist, it's really like a lot of it feeds our own soul of like, I'm just yes. a curious child that I want to know. Listen, <laughs> I am the first audience member for my podcast because mm-hmm. for each guest that I have that comes out, I'm just like, 
wow. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Um, and I totally get that. So, okay. You touched briefly on kind of like, you know, what the topics will cover, but elaborate a little bit more. What, what are we looking forward to in this particular podcast? What are, what are some topics? What are some discussions that are going to be happening? Yeah. Um, and is, is this long form even? So, um, the, I guess that the format will be similar to, to this format where it's conversations with different, um, members of the community. Obviously we're prioritizing black members of uh, Concordia's community for for them to bring the work that they're thinking through. And so when I think about black perspectives, I think on it in in many ways, right? So there's black perspectives in the sense of like actual black content. So whether that be, you know, looking at critical race theory, whether that be looking at uh, a black community center or something of this sort, but then there's also just black perspectives, right? Like as black people doing interesting things, whether that be STEM, engineering, you know, whatever it is that we're doing, we're bringing our perspective, our, our experiences to that. And so I'm really excited for that. And then there's another component of um, how do we engage with uh, parts of the university that we don't have access to at the moment, right? So um, whether that be, you know, um, for example, I had a conversation with sustainability and zero waste recently, and there is a lack of racialized communities in that area of the university. And we need to kind of unpack why and find ways to get ourselves in there, um, find ways to collaborate and, and build meaningful relationships. And so I'm so excited to see what that'll look like when we also bring in um, uh, people who are practicing their allyship. And I say practicing allyship because I do not believe ally is an identity. It is a practice. It is something that is long-term and is something that is living and moving. And so I'm really excited to see, you know, that for the members of the community who want to practice allyship for the Black community, how can we bring them into the conversation and see um, what are some of the challenges? Why are there, is there a lack of representation? Um, what are the barriers that the community is feeling and how can we collaborate to address that together? Right. So on that note, who in your opinion do you think this podcast is for in terms of like audience wise? I hope it's for your mama and your child. And your <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, bring your auntie in them and let them listen. It's for everybody <laughs> in the living room. It's you know, it's winter break. Everybody like sit around, get cozy, put the old radio yes. on. Um, I would say that it's really for. Um, I mean, it's it's for it's for Concordia. It's for the city. It's for um, anyone who is interested in black thought. And that, for me, is such a broad community of people. Um, and I really am quite excited to see how, um, what kind of community that develops from this series, right? Who, who are the people who are getting engaged, um, coming to, you know, all of the different webinars and, and podcast um, lives and, and all of that. I'm really excited to see who we end up having as an audience. But in terms of what I'm thinking about, um, I'm thinking about making sure that the content that we bring, it, it really... Um, touches as much of the age spectrum as possible. You know, like I said, I live with a toddler and I live with an elder. And when I do things, I want it to be as accessible as possible for, for them to engage with. Um, I want it to be real where, you know, toddlers might walk in while you're doing your thing. <laughs> 
and um, and I want it to feel okay. yeah. like uh, part of the conversation that uh, everyone can have an opinion about. Um, I've been I was so lucky growing up that you know my mom there was never a room or conversations that I didn't have access to. Um, she would have all of her friends and they were having these big philosophical conversations in the dining room and. I could walk in and I could hear that. And, and I'm sure that, you know, um, those are part are still informing the way that I think about the world now. It's, you know, you hear a word here and, and it's, so I really think of it as, as something that can enter people's homes, um, especially in this particular time, because it, it really is about entering people's homes and, and um, allowing them to engage with Black thought. In terms of this podcast, do you think it's going to be an opportunity for the audience to be educated on Black perspectives? I would use the word engage more than educate because I think um, I think educate implies that there's a there's like a a point where you can become an expert, and I think that that it's similar to that word of ally where I feel like people take on take it on as an identity versus a practice. And I think that, you know, um, there's, you can't read a book and then be like, I know black people and realizing that there will always be more for us to learn, for us to hear. Um, sometimes the thought, the thing that we heard last week will go in complete contradiction to the thing that we hear next week because it's a community. It's living and breathing. There are contradictions. There are parallels. Um, and so I'm, I'm really, I'm quite excited to, to see how people engage with it and bring their own knowledge set as well, right? So when you're engaging and as opposed to when you feel like you're being educated, sometimes you don't feel like you can bring your person to the table. And I want people to feel like they can bring their person to the table and find pathways to engage with it, um, entry points, whether that be because like, oh, I'm all also really interested in, um, you know, uh, different perspectives around uh, engineering or whatever, and f- and finding their entry points in that way, as well as learning from another on a peer level. Oh, that's amazing. I'm so excited. All right. Well, these are some very important questions. These, these last two questions that I have for you. Where and when can people tune in? Because we need to know. So I'm, we haven't had an official um, schedule yet, but the Fourth Space is going to have all the scheduling uh, online. It will be hosted by Fourth Space. Thank you so much, Fourth Space, for making that happen. So grateful. Um, and so it'll be similar to this format, um, likely every two weeks, I guess, um, as uh, as we come back from the winter break. And it'll be a, a web- webinar live that then be- becomes this wonderful podcast and will be shared for every with everyone. Um, the BPO's website. That's another way to to stay in touch and know what's happening. Um, the Black Perspectives Office has a Facebook as well, and we'll be sharing all of the lives through that. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Anik, for just taking this time to present yourself, present the BPO, and present this new podcast series. Uh, can't wait for it to launch and for everyone to just kind of hear what's been happening, um, what's happening at Concordia specifically in terms of Black Perspectives in all kind of areas, factors, and um, aspects. Thank you to Concordia University. Thank you, Doug, um, and the Fourth Space for facilitating this conversation, for allowing it to happen today. And look forward, I'm looking forward to seeing how this podcast just continues to grow. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. More to come. Thank y'all. You can follow us on SoundCloud, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram at CU Fourth Space. 
The Force Space Podcast is hosted by me, Douglas Moffat, and produced by myself and Anna Voklovec. Editing by Makai Halkrow and Chloe Lalone, with social media and web assistance from Carrie Vomstead. And special thanks this episode to Annick Mojo-Flavien and Josie Formé, with music by Supercontinent. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>